Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Top 1000 Funds podcast collaboration with the PRI, Sustainability in a Time of Crisis. This new series is brought to you with support of Rubico, and I'm Amanda White, editor of top1000funds.com. The COVID-19 global health and economic crisis has highlighted the need for leadership and capital to be urgently targeted towards the vulnerabilities in the global economy. The issues of sustainability have never been more important, and it's an essential time for investors to be collaborating for better corporate behaviours and economic outcomes. I'm joined today by Chief Executive of the PRI, Fiona Reynolds. Fiona, good to talk with you. Thanks very much for being here. Great to be here, Amanda, and hope you're safe and well, and hope everyone listening safe and well. Thanks, Fiona. So today we're going to look at specifically at some of the activities of the PRI and your engagement with stakeholders around COVID-19, their ESG priorities and what a sustainable recovery looks like. Importantly, we're going to discuss how to prioritise the long and short term considerations and priorities for investors and what they can be doing to actively shape a sustainable future. So the PRI was quick to engage with signatories and get their participation in a collaborative way to highlight their short and long-term priorities. You put together two signatory participation groups, one focused on the short and one focused on the long-term. Can you talk to us about what that revealed and how you've turned those short and long-term priorities into an action plan? Sure. Well, the pandemic was, of course, unprecedented and many of our signatories were obviously looking to us as they were to other organisations for guidance. So what we did was we produced material pretty quickly on our views on what COVID-19 meant for responsible investment and then thinking about the immediate things the responsible investment community would need to act on. So we produced guidance on questions that we should be, as investors, asking questions, particularly around their crisis management plans and around their human capital and supply chain management, because they were some of the most immediate issues. And this was really to ensure that companies were supporting their workforces and their supply chains, obviously both important components to keeping the economy turning. Then things were obviously happening very quickly and a lot of uncertainty about what COVID-19 would mean. So to bring investors together and really to share information and learnings, as you said, we formed these two signatory participation groups to make sure that our work was genuinely supporting the global investor community in their response and addressing signatories' most pressing short-term needs, but also starting to think about the longer-term goals. And um, as Churchill famously said, never waste a good crisis or never let a good crisis go to waste. We wanted to make sure that in this moment, really where there was a lot of um, suffering and confusion in the world due to the crisis, that we could empower our signatories to create help positive ESG outcomes and to shape a better future. I think really importantly from our perspective was that we wanted to be and we wanted investors to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. It's easy to be a group and to be uh, people who can sit on the sidelines with vested interests saying, what about me and all the things that investors want and all the things that are happening to them. 
But we wanted to make sure that we were playing our role, that investors were playing their role in the economy and society more broadly in these unprecedented times and that it was a positive role. So the next phase of your work is focusing on five key themes. Can you tell us what they are and what progress has been made so far and what the, what the plans are around it? So one of the other things we wanted to make sure that we were doing is that we wanted to make sure that there was a better response from the financial community than what we saw in 2008 after the global financial crisis. So within the group, in the groups that we had, the two groups that we had going, they were really well received by the signatories. We had over 200 signatories in each group and it became clear what some of the themes were. So armed with those sort of insights from our signatory base, we then put together five groups, one that looked at COVID-19 and ESG in the 2020 AGM season, another that was looking at the immediate human and labour rights concerns, one that looked at uh, sustainable and inclusive recovery and reform. Then we had a group looking at financial system function in a time of crisis. So what were, what were we learning and what did we need to change? And we also looked at, importantly, implications of COVID-19 for emerging markets, which, of course, were quite different needs and concerns than developed markets in some ways. So across each of these areas, we've continued to work closely with the signatories, delivering a number of outputs. So we've, we've hold, held a lot of webinars, bringing, bringing um, investors and corporates together, bringing them together with policymakers to discuss issues. We've written a number of papers, guidance, guidance documents. We put together a recovery plan for investors to aid their engagement with policymakers on how we deliver a sustainable green and inclusive recovery. One uh, focused on meeting the aims of the Paris Agreement and reaching our net zero commitments, but also focusing on job creation and addressing inequality and driving reform. So very much in line with the how do we build back better and this work is ongoing and it's really feeding into our new strategy process and development as well. So at the moment, I'm working on our next three-year strategy, which comes into place next year. And you really have to reassess everything to do with COVID-19. You have to think about, well, what does, what does all of this mean for sustainability? I mean, I think it's made sustainability even more important, but I think it's highlighted a number of issues that we as a responsible investment community need to focus on and really double down on and do so with some urgency. So if we look kind of to the future and what maybe sustainable investing 2.0 or maybe even, even it's even further along the line than, than that iteration, but what the sort of next iteration of sustainable investing is, and it, and it seems like one of the most significant factors in identifying that is the move from a focus on risk return to a, a focus on risk return and outcomes or impact. Can you tell us a little bit about the work you're doing with Generation on this? So there is increasing recognition that in addition to adequate financial returns, uh, beneficiaries need 
and benefit from social environment and economic standards to provide for their quality of life and for their quality of life in retirement. And this is very much aligned with growing expectations for investors to consider sustainability impact through implications for investors of things like the Paris Agreement and the SDGs, for example. So in response to this, PRI and UNFFI, along with the Generation Foundation, has appointed the leading law firm Freshfields to analyse whether and how our current existing legal frameworks allow for investors to consider sustainability impact as part of their regular day-to-day investments across 11 different jurisdictions. So we're not just talking about can I include ESG factors as part of my risk management. We're talking about can we prioritise sustainability outcomes, even if that means we have to think less about the returns. Of course, we have to think about returns, but can we prioritise the sustainability impact? So the project also has a reference group of experts to test and support the report across its development. So the research is now underway and the research into those different 11 legal situations in different countries. And then what we will do with the outcomes is look at what rules are in place in different countries and what would need to be changed. And then that could be part of our work going forward in discussion with policymakers. So it's a very big project. It really builds on the work that PRI, UNIPFI and um, Freshfields has done since 2005 in thinking about ESG factors in fiduciary duty. So in 2005, Freshfields really wrote the report on fiduciary duty that was about the PRI even coming into existence because we needed to be able to show that we could actually do this. And then the PRI took this further in uh, with UNFFI a number of years ago and wrote a paper on fiduciary duty in the 21st century. And this is taking it to the, the next level where sustainability really needs to head. And if you think about it, Um, a number of years ago or just five years ago, you didn't have things like the Paris Agreement. We didn't have the Sustainable Development Goals. And if governments have agreed to these things and they want investors and corporates to be able to have them as part of the makeup of what they're doing, then you need frameworks, you need regulation that actually enables it. And that's what we're working on now. So what's the timeframe around that piece of work, Fiona? When could we expect some results? Well, the paper will come out this year is the aim. I hope that the first paper comes out before the end of the year. Then we'll have to have a roadmap for the 11 jurisdictions about what we do in each individual country because obviously different rules, different countries, different parliaments. So that work, I think, will take some time. If I think about the fiduciary duty work, our original work from 2005 with with Freshfields, well, you know, if you speak to some some people in some countries, particularly in the US, we're still having that debate about the original fiduciary duty. So I hope it doesn't take another 10 years for this to be work that really lands across the world. I hope it happens quicker than that. I hope people are more open to what we need to do with sustainability. 
I think in Europe it won't probably be as difficult because if you think about what's happening across Europe at the moment, sustainability is being bedded very much into what they do in their financial systems into and into financial regulation, but that's not uniform across the world. So you mentioned in one of your five themes was looking at human rights and, and, and labour rights and, and, and concerns, and certainly one of the discussion points that's come out of this crisis is that the S in ESG those social issues and labour and working rights and supply chain issues and racial inju- racial injustice type issues have come to the forefront. So while obviously these are very important and this is a, a good thing in my mind, there's also some concern I think by investors that it's taken the focus away from the environment and climate emergency. So I'm interested in knowing what your recommendation is for how asset owners can bring all of these issues together and manage all of these really important things uh, at the same time? Well, I think, as you said, S issues are coming into um, into focus and they're really much more on the investor's radar in a way that they never have been before, for many but not for all investors. And pleasingly, I keep saying the S in ESG is no longer being viewed as the poor cousin and I hope that we keep it that way. And COVID-19 has further served to emphasise the importance of the S issues. So as you said, it's really highlighted inequality, um, issues to do with labour rights, modern slavery, access to health, and really everything around social inclusion, including the race issues. But I don't really think that it's come at the cost of the environmental focus or progress. In fact, considerations of social issues are really integral to solving the climate emergency. So if we just take the just transition, for example, we're not going to be able to solve the climate issues if we don't take people with us, if we don't think about the the communities that are going to be impacted. Because at the end of the day, a lot of issues, as we know, to do with climate change in many countries become very political. And if we haven't solved the problems of what happens to those workforces, then that just leaves us really behind where we should be on climate. And, you know, I think Australia is an example of that, for, for, for instance. So that the S and the, the E, the S and the G have to be think thought about together. I think one of the problems is is that we um, they're too siloed. People just think think about them in one way rather than thinking about the issues in a holistic way. I think the evidence also doesn't show that environmental issues are off the agenda. So if I think about things we're involved with, uh, you know, we're part of Climate Action 100 Plus, and that's about getting companies to commit to net zero and also about, you know, across their whole operations and how they're going to do it and setting targets. And just in recent time, we've seen major announcements from Shell, BP, Total and a whole lot of other companies. We're also seeing through the Asset Owner Alliance that um, it's not, we're not just seeing investors asking companies to make commitments. We're seeing that investors themselves 
are making commitments to net zero across their entire portfolio and the Asset Owner Alliance continues to grow in numbers but also in important and in importance. But coming back to how things are interconnected, I think that the world is finally beginning to understand that healthy people as well as a healthy planet are preconditions to a healthy economy. So progress on social issues therefore doesn't take away from momentum and focus on environmental ones. I really think that we must address social protections in society, including in labour laws. In my view, things have got far too out of balance. How do we have full-time workers with no sick pay and no other leave entitlements in the world? How do we have minimum wages that aren't living wages? How have we allowed so much outsourcing of work and down to some, you know, the the minimum bare standards in some of the richest countries in the world? And I think the holes of have shown up in having a system like that, where we've ended up with people who, because they don't have any sick pay, they've gone to work and they've spread the pandemic even further. This isn't this doesn't benefit anyone. It puts us all at risk. So we have to think more holistically about the kind of world that we want to live in. So we have to address decent work, and that's certainly part of the work that the PRI will be doing going forward. And I think that that is even more important in a post-COVID world because I really believe that the world of work is going to change again and and quickly. Um, We aren't going back to working in offices five days a week or other ways of working. So how do we ensure in that transition that is now starting to happen rapidly that workers have the right conditions and then employers get what they need? So we have the right levels of oversight and productivity from an employer perspective, but the right protections for workers. And, of course, this requires high level of trust from employees and employers, Uh, But this will have to underpin the business and employee relationship of the future. And I really believe it can be a win-win for everyone. But work's going to have to be reimagined. And we don't have to um, throw out the environmental side. I just think they're so interlinked and that's how we have to view them. And So my recommendation to investors is don't just see things in an E bucket or an S bucket or a G bucket think about how they all come together. Now, obviously, when you look at uh, from a company perspective, different things are are bigger priorities at different countries, but you have to use the whole lens of sustainability, not just one lens. And I guess this is where the sustainable development goals really kind of come into their own as a as a holistic way of looking at the world's problems, if you like, and 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 being a roadmap for investment and and how to how to be part of those solutions. So next month is the fifth year anniversary you mentioned of the Sustainable Development Goals. Do you think that there's been enough progress in aligning investments with the SDGs and and how are you guiding signatories around this? Yeah, as we look to the recovery from COVID-19 and the drive to build back better, I think the SDGs have obviously been never as important as they are right now. I like to think of the SDGs as the world's business plan, so very much the North Star. 
about how we address the recovery. I don't think we need to be creating new plans. I really believe that if we implemented the sustainable development goals and all of the targets and aims and objectives that sit underneath each of those goals, we would go so far in creating the world that we'd all like to live in. So we need to implement this plan. And this, I think, will really assist us in addressing all the urgent issues that have been further highlighted by COVID-19. Um, inequality, labour rights, environmental issues, health and social inclusion, all of these things we've just been talking about. I was really fortunate to be at the UN in New York for the launch of the Sustainable Development Goals, but nearly five years on, we are running out of time to achieve them. It's, you know, we've only got 10 years or just under 10 years now. And the UN Secretary General recently said that overall, we're seriously off track. Hunger is rising half the world's people lack basic education and essential health care. Women face discrimination and disadvantage everywhere. And one of the reasons for the faltering progress, he said, is the lack of financing. And UNCTADA estimates that the funding required is between five and seven trillion per year from the private sector. Governments alone obviously cannot fund the SDGs nor the COVID-19 response on their own. I think what's more COVID-19's highlighted uh, and in many cases exacerbated systemic issues which the goals seek to address. So I, I think that there's really um, a backdrop of urgency when it comes when it comes to the SDGs, but I also think there's an opportunity uh, with tens and tens of trillions of dollars in stimulus packages being rolled out, now is the time to accelerate progress against the SDGs. And obviously, investors have got a key role to play. So we've put together a um, five-part framework for investors that really helps them think about the SDGs and how they can invest with SDG outcomes. And I would really encourage our signatories who are thinking about these issues to work their way through the framework. It's got a good starting point, good steps that you take along the way, and ultimately you are, in the end of following the five steps, investing in a way that considers the SDGs and considers the outcomes of the SDGs. I'm not pretending that this is an easy change. I'm not pretending that it's easy to do, but it's all we all where we need to get to. And it's very much intertwined with the work that I was talking about that we were doing on the legal framework for impact, thinking about outcomes and the outcomes of your portfolio on the real world and on society, not just thinking about what are the risks, the ESG risks to my, my portfolio. But these are very different ways of thinking and it's a very different way of thinking about sustainability. But I do believe that this is where sustainability is heading. This is sustainability 2.0 or 3.0, whatever we might like to call it. So on the back of that, you know, you're talking about the legal framework and, and the work that you've done talking with policymakers, you, you know, you've done a fair bit of work on how investors can engage with policymakers and what potential policy responses might be. And you've got that great piece, the inevitable 
policy response. Can you talk us through what investors might expect, um, what the different scenarios might be, and, and also what their role can be in getting their views heard? So at the PRI, we really find that investors or responsible investors significantly under, underestimate the positive role that they can play, the responsible investment industry can play in encouraging policy change. We have leverage and we really need to use it. As I mentioned earlier, um, our latest briefing sets out how investors can raise the game on policy engagement to support governments as they grapple with the ramifications of the pandemic and work to build back better. So that briefing document really sets out a seven-part framework for action, and it's reinforcing the link between investors and policymakers on issues such as climate and human rights goals. And so, you know, it's really about aligning your policy engagement and your investment objectives and working with policymakers, but within their timetables and leveraging arguments based on the technical expertise that we have around sustainability issues as investors and engaging um, really at all levels of the policy process and through the media. Um, Again, you know, we've got a powerful voice, let's use it. Working together and I think bringing together the industry to build consensus with others, working with business, better understanding the dynamics of the policy decision-making process and being clear about who you represent and how your policies impact your investor base. As investors, particularly pension funds, they really represent the whole of the community in terms of their investments, their retirement retirement needs. And I don't think the responsible investment community really has had a strong enough voice in mainstream policymaking, but that's starting to change. And I think we could be a really good force for good to help create a more sustainable world. And we need to we need to be that alternative voice because there's far too many uh, business groups and investments groups that lobby against change and want to keep things as they as they are. If we think about the United States at the moment, the Department of Labor is trying to wind back issues on sustainability on ESG. And why are they doing that? Because there's forces at work particularly within the business community, who don't want to see investors have a strong voice, who want shareholders' money, but they don't want shareholders asking questions and they think, you know, sustainability is rising too far. So we either can let others trample all over us or we have to have a stronger voice and that's the role that we've been trying to play, being that positive side within the policymaking discussions. So, Fiona, you mentioned that you're working on the PRI three-year plan. How, I just want to sort of look inwards for a second and, and you know, see how the activities of the past few months have, have impacted the PRI and the team and, and, and whether it's changed the plans within the organisation and how's it shaped your long-term strategic priorities. Can you tell us a little bit about what your three five, ten-year plans might be and if that's changed at all? 
Yeah, well, it's interesting, really. I've got to say that from sitting in from my perspective, that I've never found sustainability to be so interesting than it is right now as a result of COVID-19. And I do think that's partly because people have started to understand more the importance of it and the interconnectedness of issues. So it hasn't so much as changed our plans, changed them slightly and accelerated some issues. So with the next three-year plan, we're really looking at that move from um, thinking about outcomes and helping to enable that shift in thinking around responsible investment from pure risk and return to risk and return and outcomes or impact. So that's one key part. And I talked a little bit about the work we're doing with Freshfield, Freshfields. And then the SDG. So I already mentioned that, but very much um, doing a lot more work around the sustainable development goals. We've got the framework. There'll be a whole lot more guidance around the SDGs. Then we've got a big program around improving sustainability data. So um, part of our next three years, we've just we've just announced yesterday a, a partnership with the World Business Council of Sustain- on Sustainable Development on a number of things, but one of the key things is how do we get good sustainability data? This has been an ongoing issue for years and years, and it's something that needs to get sorted out Investors continue to say to us that not having access to good data that is decision useful for them is a roadblock and we've got to remove that roadblock. Plus, if we want to have the focus on outcomes or impact, we need to be able to get the right information from corporations to be able to know what that looks like and to be able to measure that. Um, So, that's going to be an important part of our work as well. Then there's um, the social issues, the human rights. So as we've already said, they're really coming to the to the fore. We've put together a five-year program on human rights. That, and the aim is at the end of the five years that all of our signatories will have incorporated human rights into their investment process, that these will be underpinned by the UN guiding principles on business and human rights. So the plan over the five years is obviously within our signatory base, people are at different stages of thinking about human rights and how they actually embed them. So we've got and we've got a plan that they can work through. So it's really uh, in three parts. So it's understanding human rights, transforming human rights within your process and then respecting human rights at at the end. And that would mean that you would have incorporated them into everything that you do. So next month we will um, release a paper which outlines this and it really builds it on, as I said, the UN guiding principles but also the OECD guidelines. And the other thing that we'll be doing is incorporating human rights into our reporting framework So eventually they'll become a mandatory part of our reporting for PRI signatories. And I hope that will mean that we will see greater emphasis on S issues. Because while we have a really good cohort of signatories who do amazing work around human rights, it's really quite small. In actual fact, it's quite shockingly small, I have to say. 
Then on stewardship, we've got to focus on what we're calling active ownership 2.0. So how do you really move stewardship from being more box ticking about little issues to really focusing on the big systemic issues in the world and trying to solve them from the investor perspective? So I talked about Climate Action 100 Plus, and I think that that is a fantastic example of when you bring together a huge conglomerate of investors. So this is 450 investors, 45 trillion in assets under management, with very clear asks on climate to the largest 100 100 emitting companies in the world. You start to very quickly have major breakthroughs and outcomes. And that's what we need. So for us, with our collaborative engages, engagements going forward, that's how we'll focus. Not on little issues. We'll still support some of those in some in some ways, but we will really focus our efforts on clear major world problems and bring together those very large cohorts of um, investors. So... There's lots of other things we'll focus on, but they're some of the key key things. So it is all about how do you take responsible investment to the next um, level? How do we focus on the climate emergency, but also focus on the really important human rights issues? How do we focus on outcomes and how do we have really good outcomes from our stewardship? It's a it's a massive and important agenda, Fiona. Lucky you've got such a dynamic and innovative and dedicated team that you're working with as well. I am very lucky to have a fantastic team of staff who um, are really committed to this agenda. And also on top of that, we've got a really committed signatory base as well. So I think uh, one of the things is unlike what... Um, a lot of membership organisations where you've got where you don't necessarily have so many engaged signatories. We we do. I mean, not every one of them is, but we've got a lot that are really really invested in the PRI. Give a lot of time, give a lot of um, uh, effort, and a lot of thought leadership to the organisation. And so we're very fortunate in in that way. So it is, um, we've got, we've set ourselves some very high ambitions over the next three years. And um, we're, we're, you know, uh, putting in place also some very detailed measurements about what are, what exactly is the change that we want to be able to see and how we can measure our success. And um you know, we're hiring out. We're making sure that we're setting high expectations of ourselves and our signatory base. And the other thing that we're doing importantly that we'll roll out next year is we're changing our reporting framework. So within that reporting framework, we're going to have a core component and a plus component. So the core component is like all the all the processes and policies that you should have in place if you want to be a responsible investor, everything that we should expect if you say that you're a PRI signatory. The plus component starts to look at more of the outcome side of things and we'll move things over time from out, from the core and outcomes focused into the, sorry, from the plus into the core over time. It will also be, though, that we have cut down the reporting 
to make it shorter, but we're also making it harder in terms of the scoring. At the moment, a lot of our signatories, particularly uh, in some areas, all get quite high scores and it's been time to address that. So to be considered a leader and to get the top scores will be much more difficult. So that's a big change as well. And we'll also over the next three years, again, increase our minimum requirements about being a signatory. So accountability will also be an important part of our next three-year plan. Having said that, the PRI, of course, is a big tent organisation, so we don't just work with leaders. Our, we take that sort of theory of change that our job is to bring everybody along and that we'll only succeed if we bring everyone along on the sustainability journey. So, Fiona, most of the stuff that you've talked about on in this conversation will be available on your website and, and people can obviously approach you if they want to talk further about it, but um, certainly look on the PRI website for more information and and some of the reports that already exist. Fiona, it's been a pleasure as always to speak with you. Thank you so much for your time and please stay safe in London. You too, Amanda. Good to talk to you.